Matthew 5, 1 to 12, the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Well, we're back in the Sermon on the Mount series today. And again, Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with, with what was known as the Beatitudes. Uh, blessing. The word means happy. But for the Jew, that, that idea of blessing, makarios, in the Greek, it, it means so much more than just happy happenstance. It means the fullness of our relationship with God. It means the ecstatic joy of our heart to know Him. And so when Jesus begins to share these, what are known as the Beatitudes, these are not things that we are to do as God's people, but it's who we are. It's from the heart out not doing something to change us on the inside. Understand, God is concerned with your heart. And from the heart will flow the things that honor God. You must have a heart change first. Neil used the term, you must be, as Jesus says, born again, born anew. And if that has taken place, then these beatitudes will be expressed. We've already seen five of them. The first one was that Christ-like people are poor in spirit. That means we have desperate hearts. We're, we're desperate to know God, to have more of Him. Christ-like people, secondly, they mourn. We, we recognize we're sinners. We begin to mourn over our sin. We have broken hearts. Third, Christ-like people are meek. This means we have surrendered hearts. We're humbled before God and we surrender to His sovereignty. Fourth, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have hungry hearts, hungry for the Word of God, hungry to know God. And lastly, we already saw that Christ-like people are merciful. God has been so kind to us. He has been so merciful to us. How could we not be merciful towards others? And the idea is we look past people's sins and we see their need. But today... Jesus, in this message, is going to shift, and He's going to begin to talk about the last three Beatitudes. Again, the first one is a, is a heart attitude, a, a change of the heart. But the next two start to deal with outward actions. We'll see three things, pure in heart. I'm going to call this undivided hearts. We're to be peacemakers, peacemaking hearts. And last one, we will be persecuted for righteousness. I'm going to call that a steadfast heart, a heart that's willing to stand in the gap no matter what. 
So what are the qualities of a citizen of God's kingdom? This is the sixth beatitude, but my first point. A kingdom citizen is pure in heart. A kingdom citizen is pure in heart. As Christians, we're guaranteed heaven. And coming to know Christ, the Bible says that He has cleansed us from all sin. But we still live in a sinful body. And so God has this ongoing work with us in the heart. And I want to talk to you this morning about the heart. Who we are ultimately depends on who we are internally, in the core of our being. It's the will and the mind and the emotions. It's who you are. When the Bible speaks about the heart, it means all those. It's not just the thing beating in our chest. When the Bible speaks about the heart of a person, it's speaking about who you truly are because out of the heart will flow these things. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Remember in context, Jesus came onto the scene where the Jews were expecting the Messiah as a conquering king. They want a Messiah of war. They want a Messiah that will come and overthrow the domination of Rome, that would free them from oppression. And so the Jews were concerned with their physical problems. They were concerned with the fact that they were held back and oppressed by someone. But when Jesus came, He wasn't concerned so much with their physical problems. He was concerned with the problem of the heart. And can I tell you this morning, He is concerned with the problem of the heart. With your walk, with Him, do you know Him? And at the time of Christ, the most influential Leaders of that day were known as the Pharisees, and they were chief managers of the religious system. And over the centuries, various rabbis had reinterpreted the Scriptures, and they became known as the tradition of the elders, and they actually took precedence over the Word of God. And there were many people that tried to keep these traditions, but it instilled in them that they realized they couldn't do it. And but they felt like they were, they were missing something. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, a lawyer comes to him and he asks this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we know that this lawyer was actually trying to test Jesus, trying to trip him up, but I got to tell you, that was the right question. Because later on in Luke 18, a ruler known as a rich young ruler comes to him also and he asks exactly the same question. Luke 18, 18, he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And apparently this man asked sincerely. And Jesus eventually told him, you must sell all that you have and follow me. And this man was unwilling to sacrifice his worldly treasures for the benefit of heavenly treasure. And he walked away sad. Luke 18, 23 says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad. But that young man knew that he was missing something. There was something that was missing in his heart he knew it. And the Pharisees, for centuries, they, they taught an external religion. If you do these things, then you will be right with God. It's performance-based to earn God's favor. But the Bible says God looks at the heart. 
And 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He's concerned with you and me, the real us. He wants to know that we know him. Now, what does it mean to be pure in heart? The word pure, it's used two dozen times in the New Testament. Pure translates from the Greek word katharos. It's where we get our word catharsis. It means to make something pure by cleansing it from dirt or filth. It means two things. First, to say something is pure, it means it's free from impurities, no contaminants, no germs. It means it's clean. Second, when we say something is pure, it means it's the same through and through. It's used when somebody was trying to purify metal, like gold. You know when you've heard pure gold? What that means, they heat up the gold, the dross, the The contaminants rise to the top and they scrape it off, scrape it off, scrape it off until it's considered pure. And God is concerned with the heart that that you're the same through and through, that you do not have a divided heart. He wants us as His people to have undivided hearts, pure hearts before Him. That's why I use that term, undivided. God does not want us to have compartmentalized our Christian life. He does not want us to to have a a compartment for God and then another compartment for work and another compartment for our family and another compartment for friends, a compartment for money, a compartment for time. God is through and through. He is the main thing. It's not God first, then our family, then our work. No, it's God in our family, in our work. It's God. And He becomes the main thing. And our heart isn't divided. Now this is why Jesus was so upset with the Pharisees. They had divided hearts. They would say one thing and they would do another. They were like whitewashed tombs. They looked really good on the outside, but inside there were dead man's bones. In Mark chapter 7... Some of the Pharisees got really upset with Jesus because his disciples were eating something and they hadn't performed ceremonial washing. And what they were upset about was the idea of defilement. You see, in the Jewish culture and the religion, you could become what's known as ceremonial unclean. And this might happen if you touched a dead body or you were near a diseased person or perhaps you ate some what they called unclean food. And so some of the, the priests, they developed this system against defilement. And the religious leaders, they developed this elaborate system of rules and regulations. And, and over time, this wasn't necessarily the Word of God, but they packed in all the stuff that you were supposed to do. And in their mind, if you did these things, then you must be part of the faith. And so when they saw Jesus' disciples not washing their hands, obviously they were upset. But I want you to hear what Jesus says to them. Listen to Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines doctrines the precepts of men. You see, Jesus understood that that these religious leaders had hypocritical hearts. The Greek word hypocrites. It means to put a mask on. 
They were pretending. They were pretending to know God, but they did not know Him. They had divided hearts. You might say they were double-minded. And this is a problem in the church. People can look good and can do all the stuff, but still be double-minded, living in the world and in church, separate. And Jesus says it will not work. Listen to Jesus. Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You could call it mammon. You could call it the world. The Jews had compartmentalized their lives. Everything was in a box. They had clean hands, but they had filthy hearts. And so Jesus confronts them. In Mark 7, 14 and 15, after he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the man which defiles him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Jesus is saying it's not about the ritual. He's saying it is about the heart. Is your heart right? Is it undivided before God or has something gotcha? Now, Jesus, he's taking a look at the heart. I don't, have you guys ever seen an echocardiogram? You know, beep, 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 beep. Now, doctors, they can look at that kind of stuff, and they can tell when there's a problem. And Jesus is going to basically do an echocardiogram here in the next set of verses I'm going to give you. And what he says is it's not too pretty when he talks about the human heart. Mark 7, 18 through 23, he said all these, he said, he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside, it cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all food clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man. For within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, all as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within. And defile the man. And if we were to take your heart right now and put it on the screen, would you see any of those things that he said defiles a man? See, Mark 7 says that there's a capacity within the human heart to, lead, to live a double life, to have a double standard, to be divided. And as a pastor of this church, I'm, I'm calling you as the people of this church, and if you're claiming to know Christ, be careful. Be careful because we can convince ourselves that by going to church and reading our Bibles and giving money that it's okay that we use abusive words, that we have ugly thoughts, that we treat others unkindly and are selfish or divided. And Jesus is reminding us that our behavior flows from the heart, that it's a heart issue. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, the pureness of the heart corresponds to singleness. It means without fold. It, it, it is open, nothing hidden. 
You can describe it as sincerity. It means single-minded or single-eyed devotion. And the trouble with, with, with many people within church is they live divided lives. Instead of having an undivided heart, they're divided. Their passions are split. I'll give God this portion, but I'm going to hold on to this portion because it's mine. And what's the solution? We must continually come back to the cross. See, a lot of people think that the gospel, the gospel message, the cross of Christ, that it is the entryway into the kingdom of God, which it is. But can I tell you, the cross is every day. We need forgiveness every day. And when we recognize as God's people that He's pointing to a compartment in our heart that we have held on to, that we will not open to God, He is calling us to surrender it and confess it before Him. Is there any area of your life that you sealed off from the Lord, that your heart is divided? Because when you have an undivided heart, then Christ is at the center of your marriage. It's not God and then my marriage. No, He is right there in the center of my marriage. When you have, have this undivided heart, then it's not Christ and your money or Christ and your time. No, all money is His. All time is His. It's Him. And being pure in heart really means to be like Jesus Himself. He was pure in heart. He had undivided devotion to God. And this pure in heart, undivided heart, it's both a one-time act and an everyday thing. It's a process. One time. The moment you came face-to-face with Christ, recognized you were a sinner and received Christ, you were declared righteous, declared clean before God. But we live in these sinful bodies. And so daily in the sanctification process, God is cleansing us, changing us, pointing out these areas of our heart that need cleansing. And He calls us in 1 John 1, 9 to confess our sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the sanctification process, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that, that there are, that really there are four things that are, are, if you will, partially fulfilled now. Because to have a, a fully clean heart, that'll only happen the day that we're face-to-face with Jesus, amen? But there is a knowing Him now. As Christians, we can see God in a, in a sense where as non-Christians cannot. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3.12, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face... Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says there's four ways we see God now. First, as Christians, we see God in creation. By the things that He's made, the beauty of, of nature. Secondly, as Christians, we see God throughout history. We look back and we see His sovereign hand guiding and directing. Third, as Christians, we see God in the sense of knowing Him and the nearness to us. We know Him in His Word and prayer and fellowship. And fourth, as Christians, we see God in our experience, how He deals with us and speaks to us through the Word and the Holy Spirit. And so, here now we see God, but someday we will see Him face to face. Someday we will be completely clean. 
And how do I get that, this heart? Well, first we have to seek Him. Like I said, we can come to Him in 1 John 1, 9 and confess our sins daily. But also, secondly, we need to ask Him to change us, to give us pure hearts, to make us one with Him. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit with them, and then I will take this heart of stone out of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. So to be pure in heart is, is to have an undivided heart where God is the main thing. To be pure in heart is to have undivided affections. And, and when I began to think about this, I began to think that maybe the heart you could almost view as like a home. It's like your house. And in your house, you have these different rooms and compartments. And, and we think in our house, we're the owner, but can I tell you, God's actually the owner. You're a steward. But God wants access to every room. He wants to be involved in every aspect of your life. And I can tell you, when I was a brand new Christian, I had a room that was sealed, man. I had that thing boarded up. I had locks on that thing. It was sealed. I wanted nothing to do with this. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I'll follow you, Jesus, but I'm keeping this room closed. Guys, I was abused as a child. My dad beat me up, and I was angry, and I was deeply hurt. And I could not figure out how to forgive him, so I just refused. (laughs) Nope. That door shut and locked. But in Scripture, God began to minister to me and to show me how much He forgave me. He forgave me so much more than what my dad had done to me. And finally, I opened that door, and I allowed him in, and he swept it clean. And I found forgiveness, and I was able to forgive my dad. Do you have an area of your life where you're you're divided? That door is shut. Open it up because God wants us to have pure hearts. That's the first thing. A kingdom citizen is pure in heart. Second thing, a kingdom citizen is a peacemaker, a peacemaker. Verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Now, peace does not mean peaceful. It's not talking about serenity in the heart. It's not talking about a state of mind. And also, peace is not being a pacifist. You know, I read a story about the president of Columbia University during World War I, and he sent out a, a notification to all the employees, the employees there asking them what they would do for the war effort, and someone sent back a note and said that they were going to do absolutely nothing. Guys, being a peacemaker is not a pacifist. Being a peacemaker, actually, you get involved with conflict. God wants us to be involved. This is a broken world, and God has called His people to bring peace. And we see this in Jesus' ministry here on earth. You see, the Jews, they wanted Jesus to come and make war, but instead what Jesus did is He came and He made peace with God. John 6.15 says, Jesus perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force and make Him a king, He withdrew again to a mountain by Himself. You know, when Jesus did that miracle of the 5,000, they wanted to make Him king because they were hoping, boy, we can overthrow Rome now. But Jesus refused that kind of kingdom. 
So in his first coming, he offered peace. Now, why do you guys think there's so many wars in the world? Why do you think there's conflict, constantly conflict? Sin. It's the heart of man. The heart of natural man is that we are sinful. The reason that there's conflict in the world is that there's conflict in the heart of man. As a matter of fact, as I began to research the different conflicts that are going on, and there are so many, but I'm going to give you five. Right now, the war in Afghanistan, it started in 1978. There's been over 2 million people killed. In the Syrian civil war, there's estimated that 560,000 people have lost their lives. In the Yemen crisis, it's estimated that over 48,000 people have died. In the Somali civil war, over 500,000 people have died. In Boko Haram insurgency in Nigeria, over 51,000 people have given their lives. And there are so many others going on right now. And the reason for this is the issue of the heart, lust, and greed, and selfishness that drives man to harm man. But I've got to tell you, the world does not need another peace agreement. What the people in the world need is a change of heart, a change of nature. Because what he's talking about here is, is in regards to our relationship with people. Now, it can impact whole nations, but when he's talking to us individually, he's talking about the relationships we have with others. And this peace flows naturally from the sixth beatitude of being pure in heart. And it's more than the absence of conflict and strife. It's about the presence of righteousness and holiness. It's about having a right heart with God. Because only righteousness and holiness can impact the world and can impact others to actually bring peace. John MacArthur said it like this. He said, peace is a creative, aggressive force for goodness. The most that man, man's peace can offer is a truce. But God's peace not only stops the hostility, but settles the issues and brings people together in mutual love and harmony. Peace cannot be divorced from holiness. And I think this is what Jesus meant by Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Guys, what he's saying is it's not peace at any price. God's peace does not compromise on holiness and truth. What he's saying is that there will first be strife and then peace. There must first be truth and righteousness before true peace can be discovered. The gospel says you must deal with sin first, call it out for what it is, and then offer the peace that is found in Christ. It cannot be divorced from truth and holiness. Matter of fact, truth and holiness are keys to peace. I think this is why Jesus said this in Luke 12, 51 through 53. He says, do not suppose that I came to grant peace on earth. I tell you, no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three, and they will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Because righteousness and holiness... They produce an angst in people that don't know Christ. The world does not like it. In the gospel message of Christ, it calls for repentance before reconciliation. But peace is found and established with God through Christ. 
As a matter of fact, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. That means that we have a mission, that we are to be offering peace to everyone we know. We're to offer reconciliation. Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.18 through 20. He says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, and we beg you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So you and I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We bring that olive branch of peace in Christ to those who are separated from Him. We have the word of reconciliation. We have the gospel. And the gospel message, yes, it calls for repentance, but it offers peace. And guys, it's urgent. I urge you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. We are His emissaries, His his ambassadors. Peacemaking begins by pointing out what hinders reconciliation. It is a function of grace. As a matter of fact, when you read Paul, he always says, grace and peace be to you in every one of his epistles. They're connected. Grace is a gift of God. Peace is a gift of God. And both are found in Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said, I mean, Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But the only way this is possible is because of God's kindness and His grace for us. And do you know that because of this peace that's been offered to us, and the fact that we are peacemakers, that we have an identity, He says that they shall be called the sons of God. That the evidence that we know Him is that we're peacemakers and we are children of God, that we've been reconciled to God. Now, I don't know if you've been reading the news, but a little over a week ago, Pope Francis and the Grand Imam Al-Hazir signed a historic declaration of fraternity calling for peace between nations, between all religions and all races, in front of a global audience of religious leaders from Christianity, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, and other faith. And the Pope claimed that the God of all religions is the same God that the Christians worship. Guys, I got to tell you, he claimed that the God of Islam is the same God of Christianity, that the gods worshiped by the Hindus is this God. It's not. This peace treaty won't stand because you cannot divorce peace from truth and righteousness. But we are emissaries of that. We offer peace because we're peacemakers. Two things. A kingdom citizen is pure in heart. A kingdom citizen is a peacemaker. And lastly, a kingdom citizen will be persecuted for righteousness. A kingdom citizen will be persecuted for righteousness. So as God's people, we offer peace with God through Christ. But the world often, when they hear that, they don't like it. 
Look at verses 10 through 12. It says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now he starts out here, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Now of all the Beatitudes, this last one seems the most contrary to our thinking and experience. The world does not associate happiness and persecution in the same way, right? But Jesus says, you're blessed. You are blessed when people persecute you. Now, the Lord's beatitude, it climaxes with this sobering truth. This is a result. If you're living out the other seven, you're going to experience the eighth is what he's saying. He's saying if you're honoring Christ, if you're revealing these hard attitudes that we've seen in the other beatitudes, then this one is a given. The blessing is restricted to those who suffer persecution, but be careful because of righteousness. Did you hear that? Because of righteousness. It's not because you're mean. It's not because of your political views. It's not because you offend people with the way you treat them. It's because you're living a life that honors God, righteousness, holy living, and that life is a light on a hill, and people see the brightness, and they cannot stand it. And we know this is in our world. Christians are being killed daily. And Jesus said this was going to happen. He said this to His own disciples in John 15, 18 through 20. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Now, Paul ta taught this in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And we understand that we're offering the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of peace. But I can tell you, when you offer Jesus to people, sometimes and often, it'll bring a divide. Now, this is a promise from the Lord that those of us who live God-honoring lives will suffer for it. And we've seen it around the world right now. I went on to the Open Doors website, and I'll just share with you some stats that they have on there. I think it's more than this, but they said that every month, 255 Christians are killed for their faith. 104 are abducted. 180 Christian women are raped, sexually harassed, or forced into marriage. 60, 66 churches are attacked. 160 Christians are detained without trial and imprisoned, and I could go on and on. But with this persecution is also a reward. A reward. Look at the end of verse 10, it says, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to know that when Jesus preached this sermon, He began with that same saying. In verse 3, He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is the kingdom of God. 
And here in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The book ends. And all the other beatitudes are in between. When you're living out these beatitudes, when you're living these things out, yes, people will persecute you. Yes, it will be difficult. The however, though, is heaven is a guarantee, a place that is so much greater. And persecution, it's a real reality in the world. But here in the United States, I don't know that we really experience it as unto death. But I do think we experience verses 11 and 12. Look at that. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when you live a holy life before your family and and your friends and your workmates and your neighbors, you're going to find strife. You're going to find people talking behind your back. You'll find that people will slander you and, and hurt your feelings. It's part of it. But take heart. Rejoice. Be glad, he said. Your reward in heaven, it's, it's guaranteed. It's great. I've got to tell you, I've got to warn you. This is the test for us. If you've been able to live out your Christian life and, and you've never had anybody upset with you, you've never had anybody talk behind your back, you've never had anything negative in your Christian life, then I've got to tell you, are you even living out Christ before people? That's what he's saying. Because it's very easy to go to sleep here in America. Put it on cruise control. We're good. And we call it showing the love of Christ. But the love of Christ is always connected to the holiness of Christ. And it will shine brightly in the face of those that don't know Him. And they will be offended. But our reward is great. As a matter of fact, this is often what drove the first martyrs. Is they understood. They were bringing a truth to to a dying people. And they were willing to suffer for that. Because they understood what was coming. This is our own Lord. The beauty of Christ, yes, He did miracles, amazing things. He healed many. But the beauty is, He said, not my will, Lord but your will be done. And I think the greatest hymn is the praise of the moaning of the martyrs of the saints that have died for Christ's sake. Because they understood this reality. And they understood what it meant to rejoice. It's great in heaven. It was waiting for them. And it's waiting for us as well. Will we honor Him and live out Christ before a dying world? I pray that we will. Let's close in prayer. Well, Father, we, we ask Your grace and Your help, Father, as we begin to think through this message. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Show us if, if there is anything in us, Lord. Show us if there's anything dividing us with You, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name.